All right, this morning, it is Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday. What does that mean to you? Palm Sunday is, is one of those maybe insignificant holidays or observances that we, that we observe. And do we really know what Palm Sunday is about? You know, maybe we think it's just the beginning of Easter week. And we have to do something to begin the holiday week, so we just have Palm Sunday. Jesus had to get in there somehow, so he rode a donkey in. You know, I mean, do we understand the significance, really, of what Palm Sunday is all about? I mean, here were these people, these crazy fanatical people that were thronging around and, and, and crying out to Jesus as he comes in on a donkey. A donkey. Not a horse. A donkey. Shouting, Hosanna. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. You know, at the time, a donkey had some significance more than what it has today. Donkeys don't mean a lot today to us, do they? But in those days, the donkey had, a, had, had more significance. It's more than just the beginning of the Easter holiday. It's more than just the beginning of spring. And I want to talk about that this morning. And I, want, I hope that we will get a better understanding of what Palm Sunday really is and how significant it is to your faith. Whether you know it or not, Palm Sunday is very significant to your faith. Larry, could we show that little video right now? The next day, the great crowd that had gathered heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. This crowd praised him. They celebrated his miracles and with great expectation told everyone about him. But they did not know him. They were waiting for someone who would rule with strength and might. But he came as a humble servant. They wanted him to finally bring their people glory. But he wanted to change them so their lives would bring God glory. They were expecting a general who would crush their enemies. But he came, saying, love your enemies. They thought he could offer them deliverance from their oppressors. But he came, offering deliverance from sin. This crowd would soon realize that Jesus wasn't going to be what they wanted. And they turned on him before they ever realized he was what they needed. So as they yelled, crucify! Pilate asked Jesus, Are you a king? Jesus answered, I am not that kind of king. His kingdom isn't what you see here. It won't be established by chaos and war. His kingdom is in our hearts. His kingdom is truth. His kingdom is goodness. His kingdom is righteousness. He is the humble king, the king of healing, the king of forgiveness, the king of love. Today, we lift our voices. We cry, Hosanna, save us. Save us from our sin. Come dwell in our hearts. Hosanna, we worship you. Jesus Christ, our king. Amen. Thank you, Jesus, for being the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen. You know, there was a lot of confusion in that day. We understand that people were maybe missing the mark. And I want to just kind of set the overtone for the message today. This is what we're going to talk about. 
And then we'll unpack it a little bit later as we go. But, but really, there, are, there were two kingdoms represented that day. There was the physical, earthly, temporal kingdom that we see and what they saw around them. And then there was the second kingdom, the spiritual, heavenly, eternal kingdom that they didn't see, and neither do we. There was also a common enemy called Satan that has an agenda to destroy the, to destroy the spiritual kingdom and replace it with his own, which is that earthly, physical, temporal kingdom. And he's also competing for the subjects that make up a kingdom. A kingdom must have subjects or there's no kingdom. So he's competing for that. Jesus left the spiritual, eternal kingdom, and he came in flesh as a man to participate in the battle, in the battle of the two kingdoms because they're warring against each other. They were then and they still are today. He didn't come as the king. He came as a lowly servant. He came as a man. He came as a baby. And he grew up to be the perfect sacrifice. You see, Satan tried to take away, or he tried to trade with Jesus. He tried to barter with him years before, just a few years before that, three years or so before that, when Jesus went into the desert to begin his ministry. Do you remember the temptations that Satan brought to, the, brought to Jesus then? He tried to tell Jesus, if you will only bow down and worship me, Jesus, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of this world. And in all honesty, Satan had the power to do that because mankind gave him the keys back in the garden. And so Satan had, le had legitimate claim to the kingdom of the world, and he would have given it to Jesus then if Jesus would have bowed down and worshipped him. But Jesus withstood that temptation. And now we, we fast forward three years, and here we are, Palm Sunday, and here's Satan again, bringing in that same level of temptation, but this time he's doing it through the subjects. He's doing it through the people. And say, Jesus, if you will just accept our praise and worship as the king of Israel, as the king of kings that will set up your earthly kingdom, we'll worship you here. Both of those would have been temporary successes for Jesus. Both of those would have left you and I today with nothing if Jesus would have accepted that. Thank goodness Jesus had the long-term focus and a long-term plan not to get sucked in to the temptations of the enemy the first time nor the second time to say, yes, I will take the kingship role of Israel and live in royalty at that point in time. But rather what he chose was death. He chose the cross. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Now let's unpack it a little bit more and try to understand really what that means. And to do that, we need to go back a little bit. Let's go back and read our text for the today. today. The text is John chapter 12. Two verses, John chapter 12, beginning in verse 12, 12 and 13. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to, the Jeru to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Now that in itself doesn't sound too sinister, does it? It sounds pretty good that we're blessing you to be the king of Israel. Pretty good. But, let's, like, but we need to go back and take a look at who was stirring it up. 
Who was stirring up the crowd to say these kind of things? And what was their motivation for doing so? To do that, we, let's look at the four major groups of Jewish religious leaders of the day. Now, let, I'm gonna, I've got a lot of detail here. I'm not going to bore you with it, but I need to make the point. The, number, the first group was the Pharisees. The Pharisees came into being around the 2nd century B.C., or about 200 years prior to this time. And these were all these groups were learned men. These were not ignorant, stupid people. These were learned people, learned in the tradition and in the Scripture. But the Pharisees, they were highly learned Jewish leaders. They believed in the Torah, being the law of God, giving along with all the oral traditions as well. They accepted the hierarchy of angels and demons. They taught there was a future for the dead. They believed in the immortality of the soul and reward and punishment after death. They were champions of, of human equality. And their emphasis, however, was more on the ethical things rather than on the theological things. And then we have the group called the Sadducees. And they came into existence about 166 B.C. or just a little bit after the Pharisees. And the Sadducees, had, had again, they were learned people, but they differed from the Pharisees in that they denied that the oral law was authoritative authoritative and binding. Understand then that they didn't have printing presses. They passed down a lot of information through oral traditions, and they memorized a lot of stories and a lot of things. And so there was an oral tradition along with the written Torah that was part of their, um, of their society. They, the Sadducees interpreted Mosaic law more literally than did the Pharisees. They were very exacting of Levitical purity. They argued there was neither resurrection of the dead nor a future life. In other words, they did not believe in resurrection. That's why they're called sad, you see. <laughs> they're sad, you see, because they don't believe in eternal life. Okay. Sad, you see. They, they didn't believe in the resurrection. They rejected the belief in angels and demons. They rejected the idea of a spiritual world. Only the books of Moses were conical scripture. And then there were the Essenes. And they came into the being along with the Pharisees, but they were split off from them a little short time after. But they were also a group of very strict and zealous Jews who took part against, in the revolt against the, the Cyrenians. They followed a very strict observance of purity laws of the Torah. They were notable for their communal ownership of property. They had a strong sense of mutual responsibility. They daily, daily worship was an important feature along with daily study of their sacred scriptures. Solemn oaths of piety and obedience had to be taken. They uh, offered sacrifices on holy days and during sacred seasons. Marriage was not condemned in principle, but was avoided. And they attributed all to fate. And then there were number the fourth group, the zealots. They originated around 6 B.C., so they're the new guys on the scene here. And they, and they existed until around 73 A.D. They, they fell away when, when Jerusalem was destroyed. But they opposed, the zealots, they opposed payment of tribute for taxes to a pagan emperor, saying that their allegiance was due only to God. They had fierce loyalty to the Jewish traditions. They were opposed to the use of the Greek language in Palestine. And they prophesied the coming of the time of salvation. Now, I go into all that detail because it's important that we understand that there was a lot of tradition then. There were a lot of established things in regards to the religious structure. Um, this was not a time of chaos. This was a time of very strict order, very strict obedience to the law, very strict um, observance. And these people were very committed. They were very committed in their ways. 
And they were not newbies on the block. They'd been around for a couple hundred years. That's as old as our United States is, just so you know. If 200 years doesn't sound like a long time, our country is only about 200 years old. So uh, they, they've been there quite a while. What was the government of the day then as well? And why was there such, such a, re, a resentment towards it by the Jews? Now understand the Jews at the time were under Roman rule. They were not free. They were not ruling themselves. They had a Roman emperor, and they were under Roman rule. And they had a, they had a very difficult time. Um, let me just read a little bit more to you here about what the anxiety, what the tension was here, so we can grasp why the Palm Sunday message of Jesus as a deliverer was so, idly, so vitally important to these people. It says, during the first century, Rome had dominion over Israel. In 63 B.C., after much turmoil and civil war within Israel, the Romans invaded and conquered Jerusalem. In order to keep control over the Galilean and Judean principles or peoples, Julius Caesar and the Senate installed Herod as king. It would take Herod three years to finally gain control over the still hostile Jews, but he would, do, but he would in due course keep a firm rule over the whole region. He eventually became one of Augustus' favorite military leaders and was admired by the new emperor because of, of his immense development program. Not only did Herod expand the temple in Jerusalem to be more grandiose and Hellenistic Roman in style, but he also imposed a sacrifice that the priests would give on behalf of Rome and the emperor. Additionally, Herod had whole cities named to give reverence to Caesar as well as imperial temples and fortresses to reinforce Roman control. The great building campaigns were not possible without taxing the peoples of Galilee, Samaria, and Judea greatly, leaving the majority in poverty. Not only were they required to pay taxes to the emperor, but they continued to function as a temple state and were also required to pay the tithes and sacrifices of the Jewish religion. So the Jews were under two forms of government, one by the Roman emperor and then secondly by the Jewish tradition and the Jewish religion. The offenses of being forced into what could be labeled idolatry as long, along as a difficult economic reality must not be understated. These people were under serious stress. They were, they were driven to poverty by the Roman ruler collecting taxes that's why we see the tax collectors, as in Matthew, was such a violated man to the Jewish people. He just was so, not even a real person as far as the Jewish concerned, because he was a traitor. That's why violence was given towards that man. It goes on to say, the, temp, the, the demand for tribute to Rome and taxes to Herod, in addition to the tithes and offerings to the temple and priesthood, dramatically escalated the economic pressures on peasant producers whose livelihoods was perennially marginal at best. After decades of multiple demands from multiple layers of rulers, many village families, families fell increasingly into debt and were faced with loss of their family inheritance of land. The impoverishment of families led to the disintegration of village communities, the fundamental social form of such an agrarian society. These are precisely the deteriorating conditions that Jesus addresses in the Gospels impoverishment, hunger, and debt. It's important that we kind of walk in their shoes a little bit here. After Herod's death in 4 BC, the Romans would appoint Antipas to rule and would eventually install Roman governors to help create more stability. The Jews responded in various ways to the role of Rome, to the rule of Rome, and the appointed governors and client kings. Some, as in the case of the Sadducean priestly order, 
and the Heridian dynasty chose to live in compromise to the empire and to implement their wishes. The second kind of response was a basic acceptance of Roman rule with a readiness to challenge the empire when justice or injustice was evident. This was usually carried out as nonviolent subversion. The third response was a nonviolent rejection of Roman rule. Many scholars put Jesus into this category, although several, several others would challenge this assumption. The fourth way that Jews responded to this circumstance was embodied by the zealots in violent rejection of Rome, which would lead to the eventual destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Now, again, I gave you a lot of detail, a lot of background as to what's going on there, and I do that so that you can grasp the urgency of the day that you can kind of grasp the feel for what's going on now, where, where all of a sudden Jesus, who has been gaining in popularity over the last three years, as a powerful man, as a dynamic leader, and one, that, that, one that, that, that is performing miracles, raising the dead, and healing people, and showing that he has great power. And the Jewish people see all this happening and they're thinking, wow, I've got a way out here. Here's our deliverer coming to deliver us from the oppression that we've been under at, under the Roman government. And even under our own religious faith, our own religious leaders putting us under pressure. So here Jesus is a way out for these people. So when they see him coming in, they're, they're, they're saying, Hosanna, which means save us now. That's what Hosanna means. Save us now, Jesus. Save us now. Blessed is the king of Israel. Two kingdoms, two kingdoms, one king. Two kingdoms, one king. And that's what they were doing. And so now, what was the purpose of Jesus? What was his purpose in all of this? Well, whenever we see Jesus speaking of the kingdom, we always hear him referring to an eternal kingdom, one not of this world. He makes it pretty clear and evident that he has no intention of establishing an earthly kingdom and taking the role of earthly royalty and kingship. He's not there because he wants to be served. He's not there because he wants to be set up on a pedestal. He's not there because he wants to sit on a human throne. He's not there because he wants human subjects that are going to give him everything that he wants and concubines and all the other stuff that the kings had at the time. That's not why Jesus came. John 18, 36 tells us, Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. And another way that Jesus referred to his kingdom was in, chapter, in Matthew. Chapter 19, verse 14, he said, to, to, Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. So Jesus isn't about a kingdom with, as a warrior. He's not out for the kingdom that, that can conquer the rest of the Roman world. No, his kingdom is for little children. And, and, and unless you become like a little child, you cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Jesus' view of kingdomhood was totally different than the view that they had. They were wanting Jesus to come in. They were shouting, Hosanna, save us, save us, Jesus, save us. But Jesus wanted to save them from themselves. He wanted to save them significantly different than the way they wanted to be saved. Jesus' entire life was focused on preparing people to see the kingdom of God 
to, to be the true kingdom. He wasn't there to satisfy the immediate needs of those that were wanting a king that ruled their flesh. He wanted a king to rule their heart. And the people of the day were missing it. They were missing it. All they wanted was a king to deliver them from the hand of the Roman rule. They wanted, they were into short-term deliverance. They were into immediate satisfaction. They were in it for freedom from the persecution and the heavy taxation of the Roman government. You know what? When I look at that, in some ways, I don't blame them. <laughs> I mean, I have a hard time sitting in judgment over these people because it was hard. We think my, you think our hearts, our lives are tough. We have, we're nothing. We, our lives are easy compared to this world they were in. They lived in a terrible time, and Jesus came as their apparent way out. So I can't blame them necessarily. But there was confusion in the city that day, confusion in the hearts of people. And it wasn't because Jesus wasn't clear in his teaching. It's just that the world was blinded by what was pressing in on them in their physical short-term world. See, Jesus' purpose in riding into Jerusalem that day in the back of a donkey was to be the deliverer for all mankind in a much different way than the throng of people intended for him to be. If he would have simply delivered them from the oppression they were under, you and I would not have any hope today. You and I would have no eternal life hope if Jesus would have taken the role of king the way they wanted to give him king. But fortunately for us and for all of mankind, Jesus had a different purpose. He wanted to be the deliverer to them, but in a much bigger way, in a much bigger sense than they even knew that they wanted. You know what that tells me? It tells me many things about me. It tells me that I better not trust my heart in some of the matters either. Maybe God's wanting to do so many other things in me that I see if I would just trust him to be the king of kings and lord of lords of me. See, maybe I'm not too much different than those people. Maybe I'm not. Maybe I have the same desire to put Jesus as the king of kings and the lord of lords in the way that I want to make him king, not in the way that he wants to be king. See, he was coming as the Lamb of God, the Holy One, the Sinless One, the only one that could or would qualify to be a perfect sacrifice for our sin so that all people, all people thereafter could follow him and, and rest their faith in him and have access to the kingdom of heaven because of what he did and because of what he didn't do in accepting human kingship. He delivered all people, not just Israel. Not just those people, but delivered you and me that day on Palm Sunday because he withstood the temptation one more time of the enemy to give, him, to give Jesus a way out as well. Do you think Jesus wanted to go through that next week of passion? Do you think he really wanted to go through that punishment? We're going to talk about that next week. We're going to talk about the significance of the punishment that God, how God crushed him and how it was God's will to crush him and we're going to try to understand that. We're going to try to get our arms around why God would want to crush his son. Think about that over the next week. But the question for us today as we look back on that day is what does it mean to me? 
How and what can we learn about ourselves from this lesson in history? Do you see any similarities between our world and the world of the Jewish person struggling to survive? Maybe not as severe as far as poverty and the rule that they were under so much, but yet I think we all have the stresses. We all have the struggles of who is going to be the king of my life and who is going to be the king of your life. So I see here that we, we just need to take a moment and do some personal inventory of, of how I'm looking at Jesus. What is the purpose of Jesus in my life? Am I looking for Jesus to be my center point? Am I really putting him at the center of my life and everything I do revolves around him and I really put him at the center of my life or am I looking for him as a way to get out of my situations or as a way to get what I want out of him? Who is the kingdom that I'm serving? Who is king am I trying to establish in my life? Am I trying to put Christ at the center of my life? Or am I trying to put my own version of what I think is best and what I'm looking at trying to fit, into, to fit God into my plan? Wow. I tell you, this hit me pretty close right between the eyes here because this is, a, this is something I think we all need to really take inventory of because I think it's a, this is a real kingdom message. What kingdom am I in? What kingdom are you in? There's two kingdoms, but there's one king. Which kingdom are we in? Now, how do I know? How do I know which kingdom I'm really striving for? How do you know that? Let's take some of these, these theological principles and let's bring them down into application that we can take today and throughout the week. See, it's easy, relatively easy on Sunday morning to come in and, and make allegiance to God, to make allegiance that I am in God's kingdom. I'm in, I'm in the army of Jesus. I'm a soldier in the army. It's easy to say it on Sunday mornings as we get all revved up and hyped up, but comes Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday through the week, and uh, all of a sudden now, where are we really then? So we need to have some way to test ourselves, some way to test our desire for are we really in the worldly kingdom or are we in Jesus' kingdom? Which kingdom are we really in here? Jesus gives us some good instruction. He gives us, he gives us some good ways to measure where we're at. If, if you want to turn in your, in your Bible to Matthew chapter 6, or you can see it on the screen, Matthew chapter 6, Here's some things that Jesus tells us for those that are kingdom-minded, heavenly kingdom-minded. He says this, starting at verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So maybe you need to go home and do a little homework here. Maybe we need to go home and and find out where is our treasure really at. When you find out where your treasure is, you'll find out which kingdom you're in. When you find out where your treasure is, that'll give you a good clue of what kingdom you're in and which kingdom you're serving. So let's go home today and be honest as you look at some things. Go home today and look at your checkbook and see where your discretionary spending goes. Now, I'm not up for an offering. Cut that right. No, right, no offerings, no second offerings. But I'm just telling you, these are some things that we can measure ourselves as to where our kingdom mentality is. Is your, is your tithe check, the first check written out before any bills are paid? 
Or do you pay all your bills to see if you have anything left over, then write your tithe check? That's a, that's, that's a test of your kingdom mentality. That's a test for you to say, where is my faith? Is it in my checkbook or is it in the kingdom of God? If you have any extra money left over, are you willing to invest it in the kingdom through extra offerings and other things that need to be done in the kingdom? Now, I'm not saying you take a vow of poverty. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm just saying test your heart. Look at your calendar. Number two, look at your calendar. How are you prioritizing the minutes, the hours, and the days that God has allotted to you? We all have 24 hours in a day. We all have seven days in a week. We all have the exact same amount of time. And we're all going to be held accountable to it. Differently, depending upon your gifts. Differently, depending on what you do. But you will be accountable to God for your time. So, look at your calendar. How are you prioritizing things? Do you have an established daily time of prayer and Bible reading? Do you have that as a priority in your life? Over all other things that would pull at your busy schedule? I'm just asking. Where is fellowship with like-minded believers rank on your calendar? Do you look at church and other opportunities to get with Bible-believing friends and fellowship people as a priority, or are they as a as-I-have-time basis? Is it first or second or last in your life? Where are those things? Where is the corporate Bible study time? Where is the participation in, in other things that would fit into that list? I think it's important that we understand that, that I know I talked about an established time of prayer, and that's important, but I really believe that if we really have a kingdom mentality, I think we can really take First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17, that says pray continuously and make it our life's verse. Because when you look at what prayer is, prayer is not just on Sunday mornings. It's not what we did today. That's prayer. But prayer is a relationship between me and God. Uh, there is no reason why I can't pray continually in my life. Every day, everything I do, if I cannot stand before God openly without shame, then I shouldn't be doing it anyways. <laughs> I shouldn't be doing anything that I don't, want, I don't want God to see because he sees it anyway. So prayer is a part of a continuous lifestyle of a kingdom mentality of an eternal kingdom person. It just comes with it. I should be able to walk through my day in a continual state of prayer, a continual state of, of communication between the Father. Jesus did. Jesus communed with the Father all the time. Now, there were those times where Jesus would take himself away in the early mornings or move up to the mountains to get by himself. But that does not mean that when Jesus was with the disciples or Jesus was walking with people that he wasn't communing with the Father. He was in constant communication with God the Father. And so should we be. And so can we be if we choose to be. That's a challenge for us. Where is that in our calendar? Number two, or number three, what is your passion towards evangelism? Are you passionate of sharing this message? Are you passionate with sharing it with your friends? Or are you embarrassed of it? Or are you, don't think it's worthy to share? Tells you which kingdom you're in. You will share the kingdom that you're living with other people in. If you're in this world's kingdom, you'll share that kingdom. If you're in the God's kingdom, if you're, if you're in the eternal mindset, you'll share that kingdom. You share what you are. 
How about making godly choices in the midst of heavy peer pressure? Man, that's going to be a tough one, kids. High schoolers, college kids, even parents, even people in our business life. Where are we when the peer pressure comes? Are we willing to take our stand for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? Are we willing to take our stand? Or does peer pressure just kind of make us fold into me like the rest of the people? Is it easy for us to walk away from the short-term pleasures that sin, peer pressure, represents? I'm not saying that sin's not fun. I'm just saying, are you willing to walk away from it? Because that's not your life. Jesus tells us in Matthew, again, chapter 6, and I want to skip right down to the verse that I want to make our memory verse for this week. We've just talked about all the things that come against us. We have, we have issues. There's no question about it. We have things we have to do on a daily basis. But the crux of it all is Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these other things will be given to you as well. When you make your purpose to seek the kingdom of God over the kingdom of Mike, over the kingdom of blank, put your name in it, when you seek God's kingdom first, then all these other things that you have to do, Jesus will make sure it gets done. He will make sure that he meets your needs. Maybe not your wants. Let me just clarify that. But he will make sure your needs are met. And don't be surprised when your wants are as well. But I can't make that promise. But I can let you know that he will give you your desires of your needs. So how are you doing with the concept of two kingdoms? Matthew 6, 24, just before this passage of 6.33, he tells us, Jesus is very clear about this, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money or the kingdom of this world. He does not, Jesus is not in the compromise. He is not a one foot in, one foot out mentality. You're either, both, you're either both feet in or both feet out. If you're thinking you can live a life of compromise and still be pleasing in the kingdom of God, can I just tell you from the honesty of my heart and for the truth of God's word, you can't do that. You can't do that. You have to be in or out, hot or cold. Lukewarm, he spits out. People with one foot in and one foot out, he spits out. That's why Palm Sunday is so important. Two kingdoms, one king. Which one are you choosing? Which one? You see, it's so easy for us to get caught up in the world and be so deceived. It's so easy for us to get caught up in all the things and, and we would think of God, well, you'll make an exception for me. I'm such a special guy, God. You know, I, I'm so good. I, I'd work so hard, but I've got to have my fun too. Well, yeah, you can have your fun too, but make it God's fun. It doesn't have to be worldly fun. You can have a lot of fun in the kingdom of God. There's a lot of fun there. And not only is it fun, but it, it's guilt-free. It's fat-free. <laughs> it's guilt-free. You have no repercussions of godly fun. But you have all kinds of repercussions with worldly fun. Don't let the devil tell you that you cannot have fun when you're a Christian. That is a lie from the pit of hell. I don't know anybody that's happier or more joyful than Christians that have both feet in the kingdom. And I don't know anyone more miserable than a Christian that's got a foot in and a foot out. I used to be one. I grew up that way. It's no fun. But thank God that I have both feet in the kingdom of God today and I'm marching to the beat of his beat, not my beat. 
Does that mean I don't make mistakes? No, I make mistakes. Does that mean you won't make mistakes? You're going to make mistakes. But get back in the beat like Rip tried to today at the song service. <laughs> I got you, Rip. I know. You tried. You got it. You got it back. It was all right. That's all right. But when you make a mistake, don't quit drumming. Just get on beat. Just get back into it. Listen. Listen and get back into it. That wasn't entirely his fault. I know, but I, okay. Jackie, you're such a mercy girl. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. You could have just. <laughs> but isn't that what life's about, guys? Isn't it really about getting in the beat with Christ and walking with him and not, and when you get out of step a little bit, don't panic, don't throw up, don't, don't give up. Don't throw up. Just get back in the beat. So this morning, what is the truth that you're following? You know, as we started off with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the and the Essenes and the Zealots, it's not that they weren't committed. They just weren't committed to the truth. It's so important that we understand the truth of God's word so that we're committed to the right thing. It's a lot of false religions. They're committed. My wife and I just watched something on last night on 2020 or whatever it was on the Moonies. And again, this huge wedding that's being put together with 2,000 people that are getting married and they look at him, even though he's dead, <laughs> even though he died, he's still the Messiah. In their mind, he's still the Father. He's still the Messiah. Committed people. Very committed people. But they're committed to the wrong purpose. Jackie, would you come and help me? And Don't bring Rip. <laughs> I'm only joking. But this morning, what are we committed to? Can we say that we're committed to the truth? Can we say that? This morning, I would, you, if you just close your eyes with me as we close the service, and we're going to have communion in a minute. I just want to give everyone an opportunity here this morning to examine your heart and determine. First of all, decide, and then determine. But first ask the question, whose kingdom am I in? Whose kingdom am I in? Am I taking the things that I want, the things that the way I want my life to turn out to be, the things that I want my life to be, am I trying to take that and put that on God and say, God, now I'm going to manipulate you to give me the things that I want because, God, really I'm the king of my kingdom. And if you're doing that, if I'm doing that, can we recognize how wrong that is, even if I'm committed to it? Can I recognize that that is not leading me to eternal life, that that is leading me to eternal hell and damnation? Can we recognize that? And then the second question I would ask you to look at, think about is, where do you want your life to be in what kingdom? Do you want to stay in that kingdom? If that's where you're at, is that where you want to stay? Or do you want to come into the kingdom of God? If you want to come into the kingdom that is fullness of joy and peace, long-suffering, happiness, eternal life, healing. Like everything, life is a choice. Like everything, it's our decision to make. God loves us unconditionally. He sent Jesus as his son to die for us. 
but it's still my choice to accept that. So this morning, as every eye is closed and every head is bowed and everyone is doing a self-evaluation, I just want to give everyone an opportunity to make sure you know what kingdom you're in. This morning, if you want to be sure you're in the God's kingdom, the eternal kingdom, and you want to make sure, it's as simple as just saying, Jesus, would you please forgive me? Jesus, would you please come in? Would you please be my king? I see that hand. As you would just raise your hand and just say, Father, I want that. I want to be sure. Maybe this is the first time you've ever done it. Maybe you've been a Christian for a long, long time and you just want to make sure. You just want to make sure. You don't want anything to be a hindrance to you or any concern. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. I see your hands. That's good. That's just good to be honest. It's good to be honest with yourself. It's good to be honest with the Lord. The worst thing you can do is fool yourself or try to fool yourself. This isn't about people. It's about you and Jesus right now. It's about you and Jesus. We're going to take the next five minutes or so and we're going to have communion and we're going to just share in the body of Christ. And as we regularly do, we come together up front because it's just close and we can be family up here. And I just want to give everyone an opportunity this morning to know that you have the opportunity and you have the freedom to partake with us in this observance of communion. So would you stand with me? Lord Jesus, we just come before you right now and we just observe what you've done for us. And Lord, we hold up the cracker. It's in our hand. This represents your body. It represents, Jesus, what you did in the cross for us. It represents the fact that you chose your kingdom. You chose the eternal kingdom. And for that, we have a future. For that, we have hope. We have a promise to be with you in that eternal kingdom forever and ever and ever. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you partake of the cracker? Amen. Thank you, Jesus, for that. Thank you, Jesus. And now we have the cup in our hand. And this cup represents your blood. It represents the sacrifice. It represents, it represents, Father, that you had both feet in. Jesus, you did not give it a half effort here. You went full in for us. You gave us your all. And, Lord, that is the same thing that we want to give back to you. We don't want to come halfway into this thing. We don't want to be one foot in and one foot out. We want to be all in the kingdom of God. We want to be totally surrendered to you, that we are your loyal subjects, and we will do anything and everything you ask us to do as we are obediently working in your kingdom. And that's what this blood represents. So as we drink it, we're not only remembering you, but we're proclaiming our allegiance to you in the form of your blood. And we thank you for that. And we participate in it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you drink with me, please? Amen. 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 Thank you, Jesus. Now, Jackie, we've got to sing that song again as we go because I'm going to sing it and not cry. <laughs> sing it loud with me, will you? I believe in a hill called Mount Calvary. Amen. believe that this life with its great 
Father, we just agree now and we just accept your promises to be done and you to be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Have a blessed day today.